We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. My name is Rich Lamello, and this is Chasing Hardware, and I am very excited to introduce my next guest today. Uh, He retired from the National Football League in 1986 as the leading receiver in receptions of all time and the leading receiver in yardage gained of all time. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1996, and I thought this quote kind of summarized his career better than anything else I could find. Bill Walsh, who most of us know was called the genius when he was coaching the 49ers, called our guest the most intelligent, the smartest, and the most calculating receiver the game has ever known. My guest today is former San Diego great Charlie Joyner. Charlie, welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm glad to be with you. Glad Great. to be here. Great. Charlie, you we'll, we'll 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 jump back to the kind of the beginning for you. I know you were born and raised in Louisiana and went to Grambling and we'll we'll kind of walk through that. But I have to say that there might not be a player in pro football history who has played for and with more legendary Hall of Fame coaches than you. Uh when you- <laughs> <laughs> Starting out at, with Eddie Robinson at Grambling, playing for yep. Paul Brown in Cincinnati. Bill Walsh was your, was your receivers and quarterbacks coach there. Yeah. And then obviously Don Coriel and even, hell, Tommy Prothrow in uh, San Diego, both who were in the College Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Um, Got a lot of Hall of Famers I, I was tutored under, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and we'll, we'll obviously, you know, kind of explore all of that and, and some of the players you played with also. And, and, you know, let it be said that those Hall of Fame coaches and players owe a lot of their Hall of Fame to your role with them. Um, so it goes both ways. Um, but Charlie, you were born and raised in Louisiana. You're from Lake Charles, correct? Uh, <clears throat> I was raised in Lake Charles. I was born in a little town called Manny, Louisiana. That's spelled okay. Manny, M-A-N-Y, but they right. call it Manny, Manny, Louisiana. That's in the northeastern corner of Louisiana. Okay. 
And yeah, Lake Charles, Louisiana is in the southwestern corner, right next to the Texas border. So uh, I guess my father, when I was very young, he moved down to Lake Charles because he's a truck driver. So he moved down to Lake Charles, and uh, I was raised there. Okay. And went to high school there, correct? Went to high school there, yes. And didn't start playing football till your junior year? Yes, junior year. What What prompted the decision to begin playing? Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to go to college. And my parents, you know, with neither one of my parents going past the third or fourth grade just didn't have the money to send me to college. So I see maybe a good way to earn it is, you know, I uh, play football. So I played football for two years in high school. And behold, I was lucky enough that uh, Eddie Robinson sent me a, uh, a scholarship in the mail. Not in the mail, but he sent me a scholarship. He gave me a scholarship. And I was so happy, man. I, you know, couldn't believe it. I took off that, all that load off my parents. And I said, I'm not going to waste it. I graduated in four years. Played football for four years and got a pretty good education at Grandland. That's great. And your quarterback most of those years was none other than James Shaq Harris, correct? Yeah, the very same year. We were freshmen together. And James? We, uh, we, we, yeah, yeah, we were freshmen together. We, we came there at the very same time. He was from northern Louisiana. I was from southern Louisiana. And James, for our listeners, would go on to become the first black quarterback to start a season for an NFL team at quarterback, right? Started with that's the Bills? Right. Yep. Yeah, that's right, with the Buffalo Bills. And uh, later went on to play with the, uh, with the Rams and then the Chargers. That's right, yeah. He and, finished up his career with us. That's right. And when you were at Grambling, if I recall, you, you won, you and James together under Eddie Robinson won four Southwest Athletic Conference titles, correct? Yes, we did. We had a pretty good team, too. Had some, we had some athletes at Grambling back in those days. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and also won a, a national black college title. I think that's what it was called. The national black yes. college title over Florida. National, A&M. Um, yeah. National black. I, I, I can't name it, but we were named. Yeah, you're right. We, we beat uh Florida and them out for that, uh, for that title. And then, um, and then, and so just out of curiosity, when you were in high school, now, obviously at that time, the SEC was not integrated in terms of football. Um, right. Most, almost no Southern schools were. A couple of kids were starting to go up North and play for Minnesota, Michigan State, Ohio State. Did that ever enter into your thinking or were you strictly looking to stay fairly local? You know, a, a recruiter, a recruiter did come to ground. Did come to my high school and try to get me just to visit Michigan State. But I told him I had already made up my mind. My parents had made up their mind, and my mother had made up her mind that I was <laughs> definitely going to Grandland. Got it. <laughs> and, uh, that's just the way Ed Robinson was. Right. Ed Robinson, he didn't recruit the player. He recruited the mother. He figured if I can get the mother, I can get the son. <laughs> It's a smart and that's man. That's the way he recruited, huh? Smart man. And uh, I'm telling you, when uh, when he talked to my mother, man, I wasn't going nowhere else. No matter what school it would have been, I wasn't going nowhere else but grandma. 
And it certainly paid off for, for Eddie because when he retired, he retired as the winningest coach in college football history, correct? Correct, yes. What was, what was playing for Eddie like? Oh, man, it was a, gr- a great experience. Um, <clears throat> long practices. I mean, you know, you look like he was out there from about three to about nine. Uh, extremely tough. Coached everything. You know what I mean? Yep. Give me one end of the field, see a mistake on the other end, and go all the way to the other end and coach it. Then come back to our end and coach that up. You know, he's all over coach. And uh, he always knew what he was talking about because Coach Robson knew football pretty well. That was his makeup the entire time I was there. His makeup was what? To handle all of the contingencies. Make sure the receivers run the right routes because our coach in college was the head basketball coach who didn't have that much time to put in individual periods with us. So, well, coaches happen to be Eddie Robinson, quarterbacks and receivers. Amazing. And he must have done a pretty good job because one of the many things that you know, was constantly said about you during your career was that you were a very precise route runner. I think with Ed Robinson, <laughs> you, had better, you, better, you had better do it exactly the way he wanted it done. Right. That's and funny. if his, his way wasn't very good, he would always ask, can you do it better? And if you had a better way of doing it, he'll go along with that. As long as you would, one in the game. Ed Robinson's key was winning, winning, winning. Interesting. Well, and when you retire as the winningest coach of all time, you, you obviously did something right. That's right. Yeah, he did. He was a good coach, a real good coach. And so then in 1969, you get drafted by the Houston Oilers in right. what would be the last year of the old AFL. In fact, you, right. when you retired 18 years later, you were the last remaining player in pro football who had actually played in the actual AFL. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. oh, yes. Yes, that's true. So you start off with the Houston Oilers, and the team is is fine, but not great at that point. They had won some titles earlier in the 60s, but at that point, they were not winning titles. Um, right. And you started off as a defensive back, correct? Yeah, I went, I went, yeah, I went, I went into uh, Houston as a defensive back. Okay. I actually went to defensive back, played, you know, worked out with the defensive backs, went to training camp with the defensive backs, and... Um, I was a defense back then, and I always wondered why. Well, anyway, the Houston Oilers the year before had drafted two receivers, Jim Jim Byrne and Mac Hike, and they already had two rookie receivers. And in the second round, they drafted Jerry Levias from SMU, and he was a receiver. So what people were telling me is that it's kind of hard to explain. To everyone, why we dropped so many receivers in first in two rounds? So I got to be the one odd man out because I, because a good friend of mine named Tom Williams believed that I could be a great defensive back. Okay, and then you you got switched. Am I correct? Was it a it was a hit on Floyd Little, the the Denver Broncos running back, that kind of spurred the switch? That's right. <clears throat> I was playing defensive back, and uh, 
for a little had broke down the sideline. I was chasing the receiver, turned around and looked, and, boy, he was barreling down the sideline. What happened to me is that uh, I came back, and I wasn't a very good tackler because I had never played that. You know, I had never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> and I just stuck my arm out there. He ran right through it. Got a compound fracture of my right hand, right arm, right forearm, and I was out for the rest of the year. And that's your rookie season? My rookie year, yes. And so then when you came back for your second season, is that when they said, okay, let's, let's rethink this? No, I was still a defensive back. Okay. And I went back to training camp the next year. I was still a defensive back. And I think they were talking about switching me to wide receiver. But just before the first game, the last preseason game, Broke that same arm again. Oh, no. Broke that very same arm again. And that set me back another half of a season. And back then, the season was only, what, 14 games. Right. So that set me back another, almost another year because of, you know, I, I wasn't going to heal up until about seven, eight weeks anyway. So my first two years, in, uh, that broken arm kind of, limited my play and my development those first two years. Right. And so then they, they make the decision to move you to receiver. And about that time, there's a defensive back on the Oilers who now as you're a receiver, you're going up against named Ken Houston, who would end up in the Hall of Fame. What was it like right. going up against him as a, as a guy trying to transition in the pros from defensive back to wide receiver? I was just, uh, <clears throat> God, be it's hard to explain. Well, he played out inside. He basically played inside strong safety. Okay. Where he could co he could cover tight ends, but I never saw him cover a wide receiver. He never moved out there on the corner. Okay. And uh, we know we very seldom got to run. I I got to run against him, but Ken Houston was probably, you know, the best athletic defensive back in the league at that time. And, uh, he was big, he was strong, he was fast, and he could actually really cover tight ends, but I had never, I've never seen him cover a uh, wide receiver. Okay. So we, yeah, usually, I, we didn't go against each other very much. Okay. When I went to Cincinnati, and we were in the same division. We, you know, we meet on the field and say hello and everything, but we ne he never got a chance to move outside and cover me. Gotcha. So now speaking of Cincinnati, you go to Cincinnati in 1972 after, uh, after four seasons in Houston, right? Uh, three and a half, yeah. Three and a half. You traded in the middle of the season. Middle of the year, yes. And, and this must have been fascinating. So your head coach is Paul Brown the father yeah. of the modern, modern football, right. the, the quarterbacks and then receiver receivers and then quarterbacks coach is Bill Walsh, who exactly. right. would, you know, arguably become one of the best coaches of all time, if not the of best all time. Coach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've got three defensive backs who are studs, Ken Riley, who you played against at Florida A&M, Lamar Parrish, right. Tommy Casanova. Uh, what, what what was it like going up against that crew every day in practice? Oh, 
oh my God, Ken Riley and I would have some absolute wars. There was no walkthroughs, okay? When we when we when we uh, broke up with the defensive backs and anything, one on one, seven on seven, all that, there wasn't no letting up at all. I mean, everything was fast and quick, and it was receivers versus defensive backs. And uh, Paul Brown always said. <clears throat> That's the way you just got to practice, because that's, that's going to be the same preparation for the game. So you practice the way you're going to play in the game. And we just would not let up after that speech and those kind of speeches with Paul Brown with Gills. You didn't let up in practice. Your practice, your Wednesday practice was better than your Sunday game. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Your Wednesday, your Wednesday practice, better competition for you than your Sunday game. Amazing. Going against Lamar Parrish and going against Ken Riley every day in practice was better than going against what? They taught you more. They covered you better. And I'm saying these two guys could really cover. I mean, absolute cover man to man. They could really cover. Probably two of the top 20 leading interceptors in NFL history. It's amazing to me Ken Riley's not in the Hall. Um, Unbelievable he's not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I can't can't figure that one out. (laughs) It's it's the weirdest thing. And and people have been saying it for, you know, 20 years and nothing's changed. I don't know if it's Cincinnati doesn't push hard enough. It's the weirdest thing. Oh, no, but I'll tell you one thing. This guy could really cover man to man. And why he's a the lean interceptor of that era is because he's a quarterback in high school, in college. Had great hands. Lamar Parrish had a lot of, you know, he could really cover you, but he wasn't a great interceptor because he didn't have the great hands. Ken Riley had great hands. Right. That ball was in it. It was off course just a little bit. He can get his hand on it. It was an interception. Yeah. And he and you had played against him when he was at Florida A and M, right? So you had a history with him. Yeah, but you know he's he, yeah he was a quarterback there. Right. So you weren't going up against him in college. No, I wasn't going up against him. He was a quarterback at Florida A and M. Right. Mm-hmm. And then and then speaking of quarterbacks, your quarterbacks you had what Virgil Carter and then Ken Anderson, right? In right. Cincinnati. Ken Anderson, yeah. another Ken one. Ken Anderson was Florida. Florida. Virgil Carter was the second, the backup. Okay. Yeah. And I think uh, the year before I got there, it was the other way around. You know what I mean? I think Virgil Carter was the starter and Ken Ken, Ken Anderson was the backup. But when I got there, the year I got there and I came there in half the season, half of that season, uh, Ken, Ken Anderson was the starter and Virgil Carter was the backup. Okay. And, and you came – when you were in Cincinnati, obviously that was your first exposure to Bill Walsh. Did you did you right. click with him right away, or did it take a while? Uh, it took over, it took about a year and a half. Okay. Because when I got there, Paul Brown sat me down and told me I got there in half, you know, the middle of the year. Just, he just sat me down and said, "Look, we're not going to try to push you to play. You're going to be on the bench." You'll sit there on the bench for a lot, for a couple of while, for a little while. When we come come back to training camp the very next year, 
then we would teach her all the specifics about being a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. Okay. Just the way he, just the way he was, you know. So I didn't get a chance to play that much in that season. That was my fourth season, so I didn't get a chance to play that much. But my fifth season, became a starter. Okay. And that's, wide receiver. and that's when you had Kenny Anderson was full-time at quarterback at that point. Full-time at cornerback. Oh, oh Ken Anderson? Ken Anderson, yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's, full, yeah, he's full-time at quarterback. Ken Riley was full-time at corner. And Kenny Anderson is another kind of underappreciated Cincinnati Bengal, right? He put up some oh, amazing He had amazing stats, didn't he? I yeah. don't know why he's not in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> it's another guy. It seems like it's Cincinnati's got to work on their PR. I'm saying that guy, that guy was in accuracy ratings. He was tops for the time, for the, the, the four years I was there. And Allison had the highest passing completion percentage in the league and didn't get no credit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. And what, what was Paul Brown like? I mean, obviously he drove you guys pretty hard in practice. What was he like around the locker room? What was your relationship with him? Um, my relationship was good. And uh, after everybody warned me and talked to me about Paul Brown and his ways and the way he handled things, there was only one boss. It was, it was him. He would tell you that, too. The first time I was there, the first thing he told me, he said, look, if you got any kind of complaints, you can't go to nobody but me. I'm the owner, head coach. How did he put it? I'm the I'm I'm owner, the head coach. And he had another, another one. Maybe general manager? General manager. That's right. I'm the owner, general manager, and I'm the head coach. Can't go nowhere. You can't complain to nobody. <laughs> you got a gripe. You got to come to me because I run it all, and he did. And and it, it's interesting reading about his relationship with some of his assistants because Bill Walsh, who obviously learned at his knee, and you know became the architect of of the West Coast offense. Right. When he was when Paul Brown stepped down. He didn't name Bill Walsh the head coach. He named Bill no. Johnson, and Bill Tiger Walsh Johnson. had to leave. Tiger and Walsh Johnson. found out Bill, later. Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh thought he should have been named head coach. Right. So what he does, packs his bag, and he leaves. Comes to Cincinnati. Comes to San Diego as offensive coordinator. But and April of that very same year, when he goes to uh, San Diego, he trades for me. I don't know if he traded for me or Gene Klein traded for me, but they trade for me, and they bring me to San Diego. So my coach that I had three and a half years in Cincinnati was now my offense coordinator in San Diego. And that's where my career kind of took off a little bit right there. Yeah, it's pr- pretty clear he, was, he liked what he saw in Cincinnati and wanted to get you on board in San Diego. Yes. And, and fascinating that – you know, he gets passed up for the Cincinnati head coaching job. And then he announced, he, he re- says later, I think in his book, that he found out that other teams had been inquiring about him all along and that Paul Brown right. 
would turn them away, which is really kind of yeah. odd, right? All right, look here. Paul Brown was a tyrant, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> he ran that ship with an iron fist. And if he didn't want you to go anywhere, you won't go nowhere. Yeah. You want you to go to a certain place, he'll send you to that certain place. But that's just the way he ran things. And he wasn't like that with just the players and the coaches. He was like that with everybody, administrative staff, secretaries, you name it. He ran the ship there. He ran, basically, he probably ran the city of Cincinnati, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, because I, I had I'd read something about Weeb Eubank, who coached Unitas and the Colts to two championships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Joe Namath and the Jets to the Super Bowl. And when Weeb was leaving the Cleveland Browns to take the Colts job, I read that Paul Brown said, don't take it. And Weeb said, well, you know, this is my chance to be a head coach. I'm going to take it. And then Paul Brown accused him of taking information with him from Cleveland to Baltimore. So, you know, Baltimore. kind of left that relationship in tough shape. So it sounds like kind oh, of a yeah, track yeah. record. I'm saying Paul Brown, Paul Brown ran the league. You know, I don't want to say ran the league, but Paul Brown was, you know, he, he, he had he, he he had a hold on everybody. You know what I mean? Right. All the teams in the league, Paul Brown had a hold on them some kind of way. You know. Yeah, I guess when you're when you're the father of the modern game of the modern football, I guess you have that type of grip, right? <laughs> yeah, you got that grip. Yeah, he had that grip. So then, so then, as you said, you Bill Walsh leaves and goes to San Diego to be the offensive coordinator for Tommy Prothrow, right? Right, Tommy Prothrow. And a couple months later, all of a sudden you're in San Diego, and now right. you're playing for Tommy Prothrow, who's a college Hall of Fame coach, and Bill Walsh. Right. And there's a young quarterback there who took over from Johnny Unitas named Dan Fouts. Yes. And within a couple of years, you've drafted John Jefferson, you've drafted Kellen Winslow, and Eric Coriel a couple of years later is born when Don Coriel comes in. As the head coach, Coriel comes in. Yep, from the St. Louis Cardinals. What was what was your what was the initial couple of years like in San Diego under Tommy Prothrow, getting to know Dan Fouts, and then when Coriel came in? Um, bad, you know. The first the first year was really good, really, because Bill Walsh was there. He ran the offense. I don't think Tommy Prothrow had anything to do with it. He ran it. I guess that I think that's the way he wanted it. He's gonna run it. So what he did, he just took that West Coast offense, brought it to uh, San Diego. And Dan Fouts is a Pro Bowler now. I'm a Pro Bowler, and uh, at that time we only uh, we we did only had a few a few players. We had a lot of good players, you know, but you didn't have those superstar kind of players. Right. Bill Walsh said. You know, I think we finished. I think the Chargers had lost what? God, I don't know how many. Lost a bunch of games. Those two years before we got there, we went seven and seven. Seven and seven. His first year, he said that we went seven and seven. We didn't win no games before, but we went seven and seven that year. He said we had a successful year. Right. 
Next year will be a lot better because we'll get better players and we have the draft, we get better players. Well, he said that one week. The next week, <laughs> he goes to Stanford. Was it Stanford? Yeah, Stanford. Yeah, yeah. And me and Dan Fouts say, God, Lee, what happened? We lost our coach. And everybody was really high because Bill Walsh was there. Now, almost every player, and we had some good players in San Diego. I mean, everybody was just kind of in it. Had to head down everything because Bill Walsh had skipped off to Stanford. And, and uh, the- that's what happened, you know. And what so- happened then is, you know, Tommy Proto was still our head coach. We brought another guy in, I forgot his name back in those days, to be our office coordinator. But it just wasn't the same. You know what I mean? Right. Wasn't Bill Walsh up there explaining everything to us. Bill Walsh put it in terms that made it easy. The new coach they brought in, you know, just was quite the same guy. You know what I mean? And the thing about that is that he only went to Stanford for one year. You know what I mean? Right. And then, and then t- took the San Francisco job. And he took the San Francisco job. So we lost our coach. And according to Fouts, we probably lost our way to the Super Bowl. Yeah. But that's just just the way it worked out, though. You know, it didn't work out for us. We thought we uh, thought we had the right guy in the right spot. But uh, all of a sudden, he went to, takes off and goes, uh, leaves Stanford to go to San Francisco. I say, well, you know what happened when he went to San Francisco? <laughs> They took they took all they he drafted Jerry Rice and after that, boy, they they just took off. Won a yeah. couple of Super Bowls. Yeah. Funny what happens when you draft Montana and Rice. <laughs> That's something? Yeah, in Montana and Rice. They put him in that quick throwing offense. But the quarterback didn't have to hold the ball very long. West Coast offense. And uh they won a couple of Super Bowls. He was by far the best co- head coach in the NFL. After he leaves, pro, pro a couple of years, and then Coriel come. Was it like when he came in? Coriel, oh my God, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was unbelievable when he came in. You know, he immediately. I mean, he didn't wait for the next year because he came in during the season. He didn't wait for the next year to put his offense in. He put that sucker in the first week he was there. <laughs> when he did that, we said, oh, boy, we got some good here now. Because he believed in the quick throws, and he believed in the West Coast offense. It was just a mixture of the West Coast offense and normal football. And, uh, and you know, by the time the first season started, the next season started, we were raring to go. Because we knew that ball was going to be in the air about 30, 45 to 50 times a game. We knew the receivers have a a good chance to catch a lot of balls. And we had a couple of running backs who were pretty good back then. Ricky Young and uh, Don Woods. Sure. Yeah, Young was a great pass-catching running back, right? Great out of the backfield. Man, he was. in fact, he was a 
<laughs> it might have been the best in the league out of the backfield. Yeah. At that time, yeah. Ricky Young was a heck, heck of a player. And then you had the acrobatics of John Jefferson out on the on the fringe. Right. He came out, yeah. We drafted him in the first round. And come then a tight end came along. Next year, come, yeah, next year we draft Kellen Winslow in the first round. Now we really rolling now. Yeah, he changed the way tight ends played the game, right? Sure did. I remember talking years ago. Remember Steve Jordan, the old Viking tight end? Yeah, I remember him, yes. He, he went to my college, and I was at an event, and I was talking to him, and I said, you know, yourself excluded, who's the best tight end in the NFL? Of all time. And he said, not even a question, Kellen Winslow. And he's like, and there's Kellen not a tight end who wouldn't say it. I, I, I totally agree with him. Without a doubt, he was the best. He was the best tight end that would play football. Yeah. And then, I'm mean, uh, sorry, go ahead. And uh, you can include some of the tight ends of today, too. Right. Because Kellen Winslow could block. Right. He may not want it to. But he could. And he was very good at it too. Yeah. Hands today don't block, you know. They don't, you know, they just pass receivers. They bigger wide receivers. Right. Winslow was the complete package. He was the complete package at tight end. Yes, complete package. And then uh and then and then Jefferson leaves in a contract dispute, but Wes Chandler comes in. So not yeah. to say you don't miss a beat, but the numbers <laughs> <laughs> you guys keep just whipping the ball around. Right. Justin, we didn't. In fact, when he came in, we did not lose a beat. We probably picked up a couple of beats, too, because he, he, he was a little faster than uh, J.J. was. Okay. J.J. was probably a better natural catcher of the football, but Wes Chandler was an athletic guy. Right. He might have been the most athletic guy in the league because he could play in pro football. West Chandler could play four backup positions for you. Backup kick returner, backup punter, backup quarterback. He just con he controlled four spots on your roster where you could add other guys. You know what I mean? Sure. He's like a, yeah. a Bill Belichick dream. Belichick loves guys yeah. who can play multiple positions. Exactly. And that was Elder West Chandler. Heck of a player. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why he's not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's because he. Yeah, he put up huge numbers in New Orleans before he came to San Diego. Before he came to San Diego, exactly. And then, just in case that's not enough offensive weaponry, then you guys get Chuck Muncie and James Brooks in the backfield. Oh, Chuck Muncie! <laughs> Let me tell you something. Of all of the guys we're talking about, Chuck Muncie could have handled football. A little better than the way he handled it might have been the best in the league. Yeah. You might have been talking about him. You know, but what people say now, <clears throat> who's the best player ever to play the game? Everybody says Jim Brown. You know what I mean? Yep. If Chuck Monty would have approached football the way Jim Brown approached football, Probably could be putting his name in there also. Right. Just yeah. didn't approach football the same way. He did. Man, the guy was something. Yeah, I read something about Muncie who who 
as many people listening will know, passed away uh, some time ago and had myriad problems with drugs throughout his life. Um, Numerous. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, I remember reading when he retired, even though his career was just not that long, he was like the sixth leading rusher in, in NFL history or ninth, something like that. And he even oh, yeah. said, if I had kept my nose clean, no pun intended, I would have, I, I could have been one of the best. It's, it's a real shame. You, you would have been, yeah. That, that was, that was a shame. That was, yeah. I mean, you're talking about talented. This sucker could do it all. Anything you wanted done on the football field, Chuck Muncie could do it. Throw yeah. it, catch it, receive it, block it, uh, block for it, you know, anything. Anything. Plus he had the size and the speed to go along with it. <clears throat> and if he'd ever trained just a little bit to get himself in a little better physical condition, probably could have been a, probably at his poundage which was about two sixty, probably could have been the fastest back in the league. That's amazing. Two sixty I mean he he was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I read once that Archie Manning, when he was in New Orleans with Muncie, Archie Manning, after every huddle break, would have to turn around and tell him where to go. Yeah. He just, he just didn't apply himself. Such a he shame. Didn't apply, he didn't apply himself, yeah. If he would have yeah. applied himself, boy, I'm telling you, you would have seen something. You know? Yeah. Now that would have seen something. Hmm? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that team obviously had a lot of success. You went to two straight AFC championship games, but right. before, before you got to the AFC championship game in Cincinnati, you played in what some people think is the greatest game ever played in the, uh, uh, the Miami, the, in Miami against the right. Dolphins, uh, which obviously uh-huh. you had a big game in and you set up the game winning field goal. But t- tell me about that game. I mean, that's just one of the most dramatic games ever played. It was, I think it was. Best playoff game ever was. And I believe it because there was no low periods. You know, sometimes you always have a half of a quarter where nothing happened. Right. In this game, every minute something was happening. Something was happening big in this game. And that was a great, great game, if I have to say so myself. That was a great football game. I was glad I was a part of it. Yeah. I remember when it when it looked like San Diego might be putting some distance between themselves and Miami right before the half. Shula right. called the hook and ladder play. Boom, touchdown. Was it Tony Nathan? Tony Nathan, yep. Yeah, and all of a sudden it's a game again. <laughs> Just when you thought maybe it was going to, you know, turn San Diego's way. And uh, obviously the famous shot of Kellen Winslow being kind of helped off the field, but you, you make the long catch to set up Rolf Benerska's game-winning field goal. What was that like? Oh, just, I was just glad to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just glad to be a part of it. I just happened to be a, you know, I, had, I was the inside receiver in the slot and sent, sent everybody down the field. And the two safeties kind of split playing that, back then they called it cover two. And they split. I just went right by the middle linebacker and caught the ball about 40 yards down the field. And I was just, ooh, elated when I got up from there and, saw where that ball was. Because you knew. Yeah, that was another era, you know. Yeah, but it was good. Great game. 
And then unfortunately the next week you go, people always talk about the ice bowl between green Bay and Dallas. And I think sometimes gets overlooked how cold the San Diego Cincinnati AFC championship game was the very next week. Oh man, it was unbelievable. It's hard to even come out to come out the locker room back then, <clears throat> but it was cold. Yeah, and that was a it, tough. It, 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 it was a, it was, a <clears throat> it was a game that should not have been played. I just think they they should have postponed that game till Monday night and go play it somewhere else. But that's that's not that's not the kind of weather you want for a championship game. Right. For ALC championship game. That's not the that's not the kind of weather you want to play it in. Yeah. Conditions were just brutal. Brutal. Brutal conditions, yeah. Um but again, that's where the influence of Paul Brown took over. <laughs> <laughs> and I kinda of think uh everybody wanted to move that game to New Orleans for Monday night. But Paul Brown said, No, I lose my home field advantage. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So they were talking about potentially moving it to an indoor location? Yes. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. But mm-hmm. Paul Brown weighed yeah. in. Paul Brown came in and said, oh, I lose my, lost my, I lose my home field advantage. Interesting. Yeah. And that must, have, that must have been kind of a bittersweet year because that's the year because of a contract dispute, Fred Dean gets traded to San Francisco and helps them win the Super Bowl. That's right, yeah. What was that like in the locker room when Fred left? Um, he's, you know, to me, he was our best player on defense. And uh, uh, we just hated losing him, boy. Yeah. The guy who could come around the edge like he could. But uh, Bill Walsh stole another one from us. <laughs> 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 we keep, it keeps coming back to him. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? <laughs> Ain't that something? <laughs> uh, it keeps coming, you know, because because uh, even at one year he was at uh, he was in San Diego. At one year he coached there. He knew about Fred Dean and Big Hands Johnson, how good they were. Right. Yeah, and he, he knew he was getting a player in Fred Dean. Yeah. Oh, he's no dummy. He, he leaves Cincinnati, takes you with him. He leaves San Diego, ultimately gets Fred Dean to come with him. Come with him, yep. He knew what he was doing. He, yeah, he could, recognize, he could recognize the players, the winning players, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he could do. So huh? dur- during that time, like when, when you're playing, who, who did you look at as the defensive backs who just were brutal to go up against, the shutdown corners or the safeties who could come over the top and hit you? Who were the ones that, you know, kind of intimidated? Or I don't want to say intimidated you, but who were the ones who caught your attention the most? I thought um, um, the, the guy from uh, Pittsburgh. Oh, Mel Blunt? Mel Blunt. And it's because of his size. He was like 6'3", 240, or 6'3", 230, or something like that. And uh, they played a lot of that role coverage where he always had backup help deep. And uh, in that little area he covered, he was unbelievable, you know. Yeah. It was kind of hard to get away from him because he was a great athletic guy also. Right. But, uh, Mel, Mel Blunt was one. 
he uh, he presented problems for receivers because we weren't that big back then. He was about six three and two, you know. Area. Yeah, receivers weren't that big. Receivers weren't that big, and a lot of corners were just not that big. And yeah, you're right. All of a sudden, he comes along, big number forty seven. It's like whoa. Big number four. He was big. Yeah, he was a big guy. Yeah. Played against him in high school. Oh, he was a Louisiana guy, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then he went to Southern. He went to Southern. Yeah, I went to Grandma. Okay. Cross state rivals. Yeah. Um, and who, who were some of the receivers that you looked out at, you know, kind of across the league during your years and thought, wow, that guy, he plays a pretty nice game. Mm, Jerry Rice. Yeah. I like, I like what Walsh did to him. He was, he was, he was just absolutely perfect for Walsh's offense. Right. Yeah. Jerry Rice is one. Uh, this is my next guy I like. Most was uh, West Chandler because his athleticism. Yeah. JJ wasn't bad. And uh, in the other conference, I didn't see that much of James Lofton, but I realized he was a game breaker. You know. Right. I don't know. He was. He, I don't think he was as as athletic as those other guys, or he could do as many things as those other guys. Because, like I said, West Chandler was like you know full position guy. He could play backup quarterback. Right. But Lawson was big too, you know, six three. That's just when the, the size of receivers start going up every year. Right. Yep. Yeah, and Lofton was going back to the recurring theme of Bill Walsh. Lofton played for right. Walsh at Stanford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walsh strikes again. <laughs> yep, Walsh. <laughs> We keep we keep coming back to that one name. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yep, that's funny. Um, and then you, and then and then ultimately you retire as the leading receiver and receiving yards leader of all time uh, when you retire, mm -hmm. and you yep. you then turn around and become an assistant coach for the next quarter of a century, basically. Right. Yeah. Twenty. What? Twenty six years. I think. Yeah. 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 And, and, and once again, in San Diego, you work with Bobby Bethard, who's in the Hall of Fame as a GM. You work right. with Marv Levy in Buffalo, who's in the Hall of Fame. And you work with Dick Vermeil in Kansas City. So once again, surrounding yourself with, you know, excellent coaches. Good coaches, yeah. All of them are great coaches. I was very fortunate to get hired by great coaches. Yeah. And how was the transition to coaching? It was good, you know. I... Uh... Um, I guess the, the roughest years I had was uh, the first couple in San Diego when I first retired. Um, you know, Walsh was gone and Tommy Prothro was gone then and uh, Don Correo was, he, he got fired. And, uh, and we just had a kind of a rough, rough, rough edges there, you know. But anyway, whenever that did uh, Al Saunders took over as head coach. Right. And, uh, after Al Saunders, it was uh, the guy from the Redskins when they won the Super Bowl. Uh, Dan Henning? Oh, Dan Henning, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Dan Henning, yeah. And uh, it just didn't work between Henning and that administration. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And uh, it, you know, it, it just didn't work between him and that administration, so they let him go. And when they let him go, 
I was going to retire because I thought I was financially fine at that time, you know. Sure. But I found out later that I needed to go back to work. So Marv Levy called me, and uh, I was right here in this house. Right, on, I'm walking around right now. And uh, I told him, oh, Coach, I think I'm going to retire from coaching. He said, don't do that. Just come up here and just talk to me. Well, by the time I go up there and talk to Marv Levy, <laughs> I had already signed. Had to, he made me, I signed a contract, and he had me. Because <laughs> he was the nicest guy in the world, and he really looked out for his players and his coaches. He really looked out for them. And, boy, he's a great person to be work with. Yeah. Great person to work with. Yeah. Players loved him. All those yeah, players, everybody loved him. Well, I, uh, yeah, I coached I coach there for, what, nine years, I think, nine or ten years. I was a part of some of those Super Bowl years, and uh, then Coach Levy uh, retired from Buffalo, and I moved on to Kansas City for about seven years. Then I went to, back to San Diego for my last five years. Right. That's a that's a fantastic career, and you know it's funny. Like look, looking back at at your career, one of the things that stands out. Obviously, you're not a a, a big wide receiver by any means. You're five eleven, south of one ninety, right? Right. But your durability, you out after your first two years, you basically played in every game. <laughs> I think every you missed game. like ten games exactly. in fifteen years. Exactly what happened. Yeah, after those the first two years. I had the broken arm all the two times. <laughs> I never got hurt again. Yeah. Well, funny what happens. They take a wide receiver and put him on defense, get him out of there, put him back on offense. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. Yep. After those first two years, man, I did not miss a game, I don't think. And and was it just, was it, were you just a, a really diligent trainer, you know, just constantly working out and, you know, staying on top of things, a little bit of fortune probably? What was it? Uh, I think it's my diligence on uh, working out. Yep. Uh, my diligence on uh, knowing who could hurt me if he hit me. And I always know where that guy is or where that number is. When, you, when you're reading defenses on the move, find this number. Make sure you don't uh, give, him a free shot, give him a free shot at you. Right. So I try to stay away from those situations. I guess it goes back to what Bill Walsh said when he, what he meant when he said, you're the most intelligent and the smartest, most calculating receiver the game has known. That's, that's all part of it, right? Part of it, I think. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you want to make the catch and you want to pick up the yards and score the touchdowns, but you also don't want to put yourself in a position where you get taken off the field, uh, you know, because you weren't, you took your eye off that guy. So exactly. uh, I try to know where the hardest hitters were most of the time. The toughest team was San Francisco because I never could figure out Ronnie Lott. Sometimes he'd be deep middle. Sometimes he'd be like a linebacker, you know what I'm saying? And I, I would always stand up at the line of scrimmage and find that number. Where's 42 at? 42, 42. Well, 42 is on the other side, so I ain't got to worry about nothing this time. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever I saw 42 line up in the deep middle, then I say, oh, I got to watch myself now. I got to know what I'm doing. Yeah, this would be a great time to run an out pattern. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, was that was my 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 expertise was running uh, outbreaking routes. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yes, yeah. a lot. Did he, I think, if I recall this correctly, he went to the Pro Bowl as a free safety, a strong safety, and a cornerback. He did it all. Yeah. Um, we, he was a good player. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I, I was, I saw, actually, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've got some pictures on the wall. One of them is when I was a kid in Minnesota, Tony Dungy was the quarterback at the University of Minnesota. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's that picture there. He had a great quote about your coach, Don Coriel. He said, if you're talking about the impact on the game and training other coaches like John Madden and Joe Gibbs and influencing how things are done, Don Coriel is probably right up there with Paul Brown. He was a genius. He was. And then I remember no, when, when he died, John Madden spoke at the funeral and said, I'm sitting here in the front row. I've got Kellen Winslow and I've got Joe Gibbs and all these other guys around. We're all in the Hall of Fame. How is this guy not in the Hall not of Fame? Not in the Hall of Fame, yeah. It's just insane. All these Hall of Famers who owe their Hall of Fame careers to him, and he's not in. Don, Cor Don Coriel, yep. So, well, hopefully that's one I of those. I can't understand that either. Yeah, and it, it just goes to that. I mean, I'm a big Vikings fan, and I love Bud Grant. And I remember there was always talk, well, he never won a Super Bowl. It's like, come on. He was great for, you know, 15, 20 years. And sure was. they finally recognized him and Marv Levy. You'd think that Don Coriel would get that same type of recognition. Yep. He but, should. Uh, yeah. Um, well, look, Charlie, this, is, this has been great chatting with you. Okay. I love walking through, you know, kind of the, the arc of your career and hearing about growing up in Louisiana. And then obviously – you and all the players you played with and the coaches you played for. Um, it's been great chatting with you. Oh, great. No my problem. No problem. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, uh, again, uh, just want to thank uh, Charlie Joyner for coming on Chasing Hardware. And, uh, you know, once again, the, the genius Bill Walsh called him the most intelligent, smartest receiver he's ever known. So uh, with that, I'll say goodbye to Charlie Joyner and thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. Very kind words. <laughs> Take care, very Charlie. Thank words. you. Okay, you're welcome. If you need anything else, let me know. You got it. Take care. Thank okay. you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware with today's guest, NFL legend and Hall of Famer, Charlie Joyner. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Look forward to speaking next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Life is like. Life is like.